Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Josh's role is how our partnership works and what's going on with that, how God is using that to advance his kingdom and gospel around the world. So thanks, thank you for being here. I know this day is a mix of all kinds of stuff. I love that you can be here with us. Um, can you give us, like, uh, TLI 101 in a few minutes? Yeah. Um, I think I'm on. Uh, hi. <laughs> uh, good to see you guys. Uh, Training Leaders International is an organization out of Minneapolis that exists to take theological education and pastoral training opportunities to areas of the globe where pastors and church leaders don't have connections to seminaries, or maybe there aren't schools that can train pastors. So most of the world's pastors have no training whatsoever. Um, some some uh, percentages say up to 85% of the world's church leaders have no, no education and uh, pastoral training. So we take that training to them um, really around the globe. We're in about 30 different locations around the globe right now training pastors. And I started with TLI about uh, four years ago, four and a half years ago, and have been working with them ever since. What, what's your specific role? What do you champion there? Yeah, um, it changes often. Um, I started as just what's known as an international trainer where I would lead about five trips a year with other pastors. So our model is to take pastors and other teachers with us. And so we look for those leaders that can go and teach and serve. So I would lead about five trips uh, over the course of a year and recruit others to join me. Um, over the last four years, I've moved into a role as a lead international trainer where I now serve uh, overseeing our staff of trainers of about 20 different trainers. And then I direct our non-formal training, which, uh, which is about 20 of our sites. Uh, I oversee that, that, um, that work right now. Can you share, um, i throw you on the spot. Yeah. I'd love to hear a personal story of a pastor that you got to interact with Sure. overseas to say this is something that I did not have a valuable or uh, available to me and yeah. now uh, look what God has done yeah yeah oh man it is on the spot we didn't like write these questions well, I out and I, I've got like four you. to twelve things that are running through my mind right now um, yeah I mean the, one of the more immediate ones is uh, in March I was in Dubai working with a group of Pakistani pastors there who join us in Dubai for a week of training. Um, the, the 10 guys there are in a very persecuted area of Pakistan. Um, and uh, honestly, their life is in danger every time they lead a Bible study or pray with folks or um, read the scriptures or sing. And uh, to work with that group of 10 guys, um, most of them are work during the day um, for you know eight to 10 hours loading unloading trucks and then go to these little villages where the Bible is being read in community and they preach and teach and lead in song and baptize people and they're just seeing it but they've never had any training and so for them to understand what does the scripture means I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the message today um, they've never really been trained to read the Bible well and so most of their Bible they know a few verses that they can teach but the rest of it they just ignore and so for us to be slowly be able to go through the scriptures and train them on how to read and study and then preach and communicate God's word to God's people in Pakistan has been an outstanding experience. Um, so that's one group of people. Um, I'll tell you one more, if that's okay. Awesome. Okay. Uh, in, in the Philippines, in the south of the Philippines, on the island of Mindanao, we started a training about four years ago. 
And I was at the first training there, and there was a guy there named Johnny who's about this tall, no joke. Um, Johnny was a former kind of rebel in the south of the Philippines, um, was a Muslim leader, and would raid Christian villages and Christian homes. And Johnny one day heard the gospel on the radio, believed in Christ, was saved, and decided to start planting churches rather than burning churches. And so Johnny started coming to our training. And Johnny, his, his English is bad. His local language is bad. He only knows really his dialect. So there's like four different languages that we've got to communicate through. And it was just a nightmare to try to teach Johnny. Uh, in that sense, in the sense of him understanding the gospel and loving the church, um, just saw his heart grow. And he hikes with a donkey through these little villages now in the south of the Philippines and trains people and um, preaches the gospel. So just little stories like that where guys like Johnny who have no, no connection to seminaries, who will never be able to go to a seminary like you or I did and receive pastoral training, um, just seeing God work in that way has been a really encouraging thing in our ministry. Awesome. I love that. I love that. Um, can you help us as a body better understand what our partnership means? Like, we're not going, we're not all going overseas. We're not all doing the training. Yeah. What does it mean for us to partner with you? Sure. Yeah. You know, the, the way that schools in the U.S. are set up is if I wanted to go to seminary, if I wanted to go to Bible college, I pay my tuition and the, the school finds the teachers based off of that tuition and other donations that come into the school. The majority of the world's churches are in areas where there's an incredible amount of poverty, and so pastors cannot afford to go to school, even if there was a school there. And so financially, there's a need for, for those who have been given much, like the churches in the West, to support our brothers and sisters there. So financially, as you give towards TLI, it allows myself and other teachers to go and train pastors who could never pay a tuition to receive pastoral training. So just on that level, the church, you know, throughout the book of Acts and, and throughout the history of the church has supported financially those who go to areas where, uh, where the church can't afford pastors and can't afford teachers and trainers. So that's one way. Um, I think the other way is just in terms of encouragement and prayers, a lot of you have messaged me and communicated with me, and we were in communication and talking, received letters and things like that. And for my family, as we uh, live in Minneapolis, it doesn't feel like we're missionaries sometimes because we live in Minneapolis. You know, you don't send missionaries to Minneapolis, although some of you may think you need to at times. But um, it doesn't feel like we're a typical missionary, but there's a, there's a struggle that we go through as I travel, as our family has to adjust to these dynamics that having supporting and sending churches like Damascus Road that encourage us um, has been tremendously helpful as we do this ministry, too. Good. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to, um, after worship this morning, we're going to pull together. You're invited. We want to pray with and for Josh. We're going to meet over here, uh, circle up some chairs and pray. Um, so if you want to, please stay. That'll be maybe about a half hour that we'll spend uh, praying together for that. But would you uh, pray with us right now? And then I'm going to invite Josh to open up the word and preach. God, the gospel is good news. And the way that you broke it open and broke through the darkness so many years ago, it's still happening today. There's so much darkness in our world, and you continue to bring the light. And you do it through broken vessels. You do it through vessels that uh, could not shine on our own. And it makes it all the more powerful to recognize that you're doing this in your power through us. 
We thank you for Josh and his faithfulness. We thank you for TLI. We thank you for our partnership and the opportunity that we have to engage in gospel movement. We thank you that it continues to advance, that people, that real people are moving and being transformed from being enemies of yours and enemies of your kingdom to being uh, part and citizens, sons and daughters in your kingdom. We love that. We thank you that TLI uh, raises up leaders to make disciples. We thank you for our partnership in that. Uh, as Josh opens the word, pray that your presence would be felt. We pray that uh, your spirit would continue to be active and we would be receptive to it. Open our ears and open our hearts. Humble us and break us and excite us around what you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to land this morning, if I can bring the plane in here eventually. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. It's been a while since I've been here at the Park Street location, a couple years, I think. I think I was at the Verona location last year at one time and got to share an update, and then uh, it's good to be back here, though. Um, when Michael and I started sending messages back and forth trying to find a Sunday where I could stop in and say hey and give an update and maybe preach. We landed on this date um, in the providence of God. Sometimes people say coincidentally, I don't buy that, and so I'm going to say in the, God's providence, this is the, the day that he opened up on the calendar. And so here I am, and um, it's an interesting Sunday to be here, isn't it? Let's just kind of acknowledge that awkward elephant in the room as uh, the church goes through another season of change. Um, it was a, almost 14 years ago that Marianne and I moved to Verona with one child at the time, and we knew no one in the state of Wisconsin apart from one family that lived in Madison that now lives uh, somewhere else. We moved there and planted with the intention of planting a church, and that took a lot longer to get up off the ground than um, we thought it would. It was hard. And uh, thankfully, we, within a few years, we met some folks like Gary and Christy. I think it was almost, I mean, I don't even know how long. We've known each other for a long time, a long time. And we're old now. Uh, we were young then. And uh, through just faithful servants like them and like so many of the rest of you who have uh, joined in with that church, uh, God, God did some good work in Verona. So I don't, I don't pretend to be on the inside of decision-making at Damascus Road. I'm, I'm an outsider here now, which is weird, even though it feels like home for me to come back to Madison and Verona. I took a slow drive through Verona yesterday, which changes every time I come here. There's new buildings and other things close, and it feels like home. There's a lot of memories in that city for me. I was in uh, Miller's grocery store, and they have these, like, uh, the tiles, and there's every once in a while there's these green tiles, and I just walking through there, I was picking up some cold medicine, and I just, like, all of a sudden this memory of my daughter at, like, two years old who loved to jump from green tile to green tile in that store just popped in there, and I almost started crying in Miller's Grocery Store in Verona, Wisconsin. So I called Ruby, <clears throat> who is 12 going on 25 right now, and I told her, do you remember that? And she's like, yeah, I remember that, and then I almost started crying again. So, 
yeah. So here we are. And I thought about, you know, as, as, as Shannon and I started talking, um, and as I, I knew some of the, the, the processes that were going on and have heard some stories, uh, I thought about, what am I supposed to preach on this morning? And then I realized the, the other struggle here is that the Packers, I think, have a noon game. So that's going to that's gonna really... Um, is that clock right? Okay, so I think we're going to be okay, but I understand if not all of you are going to stay the whole half hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what am I going to preach on? And I had, I had kind of prepared this message a, a while ago and was planning on delivering it. And, you know, you kind of like things change and situations change. You're like, maybe I need to preach on something else. And, you know, I went through that whole thing, and I'm like, nah, this, this works. And the more Shannon and I talked, the more the content of these passages, I think, is relevant for us this morning. And let me just, before I get into this, this large chunk of text that we're going to examine this morning, let me just kind of work through something with you, if you don't mind. It, it can be really easy to, to look at the state of the American church and be dismayed. Statistically speaking, less people are coming to church in the United States than ever before percentage-wise, and churches have smaller active memberships. Churches are struggling in the United States. And, and you can kind of look at that and just taste that a little bit as you look at the landscape of the church in the United States. And, and furthermore, if you kind of understand some of the, the cultural trends and some of the, the tension that's out there between the values of Christ and his church and the values that our culture is trumpeting more and more, you understand that it's hard right now in the United States. It's hard to live your faith out. I've been in ministry for almost 20 years in missions and pastoral ministry, and I can, there's, there's bodies left and right of pastors who have morally failed that I've known well. And you guys know that too. You guys have heard the stories you hear that all the time. Another pastor goes down. There's a, a general downturn in activity. And even as you look at some of the larger churches in the United States, you kind of wonder, is that church even teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? False teaching has made its way into the American church. And we now talk about fulfillment sometimes more than we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it can be a little dismaying, can't it? I mean, we get this. Let's just be honest. Like right now, many of us are kind of grieving and sorrowful over the state of the church and the struggles of our local church. So what do you do with that? And it's even compounded. The difficulty of that is compounded when you understand and you kind of remember your Bible and you say, you know, when Jesus was about done with his time on the earth, in Acts chapter 1, he said to the future leaders of the church, you will receive, do you remember that verse? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, before he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, Jesus says to the leaders of the early church, he says, you will receive power, and the church in this power from the Holy Spirit will spread and expand to the ends of the earth. And so here's Jesus, one of Jesus' last promises to his disciples. 
of power, and then here's our situation in the United States of struggle. How do you reconcile those two things? Is, this, is Jesus wrong? There's kind of a tension in that. My aim this morning is to encourage you on the state of Christ's church and to help you understand the bigger picture. In Acts, as uh, Jesus did ascend to the right hand of the Father, the first seven chapters or, show, or so show the church taking that news of Jesus' death and resurrection and saving death and resurrection, taking that news and being witnesses in the city of Jerusalem where the first church was started and where the church began and grew as thousands of people, hi, how you doing? As thousands of people uh, heard the news of Christ and responded and believed in the gospel and churches were planted and the church grow, grew uh, quickly. But in chapter 7 of Acts, I wonder if the apostles, the disciples, the leaders of the early church began to wonder if Jesus' word was true that he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Because in Acts chapter 7, persecution starts. The church grows in the first six chapters or so, and then in Acts chapter 7, the world, the, the competing uh, cultures and religions of the time, turn on the church and begin to persecute the leaders of the church. And Stephen becomes the first martyr and killed as he's stoned church is persecuted in chapter 7. Chapter 7 in Acts brings this intensifying of persecution for those who are bearing witness to Jesus' resurrection. The church, after Stephen is killed, the church disperses and spreads out of fear. But God uses that dispersion and spread to take the gospel to new areas. Well, where? In the second half of verse 1 of Acts chapter 8, we find that. After this persecution comes against the church in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, where? Do you see it? Did you guys open your Bibles yet? Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. So Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, promises that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the first six to seven chapters. And then where? In Judea and Samaria. Hasn't happened yet, so the church is persecuted and the church spreads into the very place where Jesus said the news of his death and resurrection would spread. God moves the gospel forward into this new turf from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The gospel advancement comes on the heels of persecution. And as the church faces this physical persecution, the gospel goes forward. It's an amazing thing to see how God uses the suffering of the church to take the news of the gospel forward repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. As Luke tells the story of the persecution of the church and as he tells the story of the gospel going forward in this book of Acts, he also introduces us slowly and rather surprisingly to a new character. There's a man introduced in Acts chapter 7 that we haven't met yet if you read through the first six to seven chapters of Acts. And you first find this gentleman uh, in the last few verses of Acts chapter 7. I wanted you to notice this. As they were stoning, this is verse 59 of Acts chapter 7. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Oh, sorry, Acts 58, last part of Acts 58. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay? So all you get is this, this coat checker at, the, at the, the death of Stephen, a guy who's holding the coats of those who are killing Stephen. His name is Saul. All right? And then in verse 1, you find out his reaction to this execution. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul approved of his execution. 
So Stephen is being killed. Saul's holding people's coats so they can get a better throw with the rocks. And he approves. He's like, that's a good shot there. What happens next? Who is this guy? Verse 3, Saul, after the persecution spreads against the early church, Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So you have this, this gentleman, Saul, who goes from coat checker at an execution to approving of this execution, who a few verses later now is leading the persecution of the early church. He's, he's stepped it up a notch or two from just holding people's coats, hasn't he? Now here's the amazing thing. Have you ever, have you ever started reading a book? Now, some of you are like, no. <laughs> have you ever started reading a book and... Um, and for whatever reason, you had to go somewhere, or you had to, you like left, you went on vacation, you left the book at home, or something like that, and you're like three, four chapters in, and so you, you maybe forgot to dog ear it, or forgot to put a bookmark in there. You left the book on your end table, and you went away for a while, and you came back, and you're like, oh, it's a really good book, but I cannot remember where I was at. And so you pick up the book, and you, you start like 12 chapters too far later, trying to figure out where you're at, and then you find out some information that completely advances the story beyond where you thought it was going or would, you know, that the author wanted you to see this progression. So you know, all of a sudden, like, this character is like, lost and confused and lonely and angry, and then you like, pick it up, and where you start reading, they're, they're like, oh, wow, they're like king now all of a sudden. How did that happen? I don't, what just happened? I, you, know, you just ruined the book, right? I'm going to ruin the story for you here now for just a second, OK? So skip forward a couple pages in Acts to Acts chapter 9. Remember Saul? Coat checker, approving of execution, leading the, 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 the ravaging of the church, arresting families and putting them in prison. Fast forward, Acts chapter 9, verse 20. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So we just like picked up the book after a vacation and went, what? This is the guy that was ravaging the church. This is the guy who was approving of the execution of Stephen. What just happened? All who heard him, verse 21, were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? It's a question we would ask if we didn't know the story. Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was persecuting the church, or sorry, Saul was persecuting the church of Christ, and now, in the middle of chapter 9, what is he doing? He's proving that Jesus was the Christ. What just happened? Like, this, this is a game changer for this guy. Something completely changed him. The church here is named after what happened in Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, and many of you are quite familiar with that story, I'm sure. But I want you to notice that in between Paul's, or sorry, I'll do that all the time here, Saul's introduction in Acts chapter 8 and the results of his transformation in Acts chapter 9, there's not just the story of Saul's conversion, but there are two other stories between the introduction of Saul and kind of the, the next phase of Saul's life. So Saul begins to persecute the church, and then in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8, back aways again, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the, the persecution spreads, the church disperses, but something begins to happen. As the church scatters, as the church suffers, 
the word of Jesus Christ goes out. Philip, verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip goes down to Samaria. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. The crowds hear him. They're amazed. They see, they see God do miracles there, and they're astounded. And we find out later in this section that many believe. Many in that community believe. This new turf that the gospel is going into, people believe. There's one man who believes that's an interesting character. and find that in verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. He was a sorcerer in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And I won't read the whole story there, except to say that Simon heard the gospel, saw what was happening, and believed, it says, but then really struggled with, I, I want to believe so that I can get this power, so I can do these miracles. And as we're introduced in this story, I won't read the whole thing, Simon's motive starts to show that he believed in Jesus Christ, not because Jesus was Lord and Savior and he was ready to bow the knee to Jesus, but Simon believed because he wanted power from Jesus. It's something that's happening around the world today still. As Jesus is proclaimed, many hear the news of Jesus, embrace the story, but see Jesus as a way towards something personal in terms of power or finances or health. If I just believe in Jesus, then I'll get all this good stuff. That's what Simon says. If I just believe in Jesus, then I'll be able to do even more magic, even more sorcery. So the Apostles were sent, uh, in verse 14, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They were sent down. Peter and John, leaders of the early church, went. They confronted Simon, called him to repentance. And at the end of that story, Simon, unrepentant Simon, says, I'm not there yet. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's not ready to bow his knee to Jesus because he sees Jesus as a means to the end. Here's the deal in this, though. The gospel is moving forward, and we're going to see it move forward into a couple other scenarios here. The gospel is moving forward. People hear the gospel. They believe. They're saved. But Simon mistakes it. He misunderstands it. He says, if I believe in Jesus, then I can get things. It's for my, my physical benefit, my social status. I can rise up a few ranks because of the power that I can receive. He misunderstands the gospel, so Peter and John are sent after the initial spread of the gospel to confront him and teach him, and he rejects their message. Now, that's one advance of the gospel. In the next story here, as we're moving towards Paul, Saul's conversion, there's another advance of the gospel. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, who just went to Samaria, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian. This isn't a Samaritan. This isn't a, a, a Jew. This is an Ethiopian, somebody who's far from uh, Jerusalem. A eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And as you know, and maybe I've heard this story, the Ethiopian is in his chariot, chariot riding. He's got a scroll. He's got a fragment of the book of Isaiah that he's trying to understand. And he's reading this passage in verse uh, 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear was, is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And this Ethiopian eunuch is trying to figure out 
who, what is going on in this passage? Who is this talking about? He can't figure out what's going on. He's trying to understand what the, uh, the prophet Isaiah is speaking about when he says these words. Philip is sent by the Holy Spirit, put in the path, and joins the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? And Philip then has this opportunity to say, that passage you're reading in Isaiah, it's about this man, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who came, died for our sins, and rose again, defeating death, Satan, and sin. And Philip got to explain the gospel to him as this man read and was looking into the passage of Isaiah. And here, in this next story, as you saw the gospel advance into Samaria with Simon the magician and his followers, and now the gospel is advancing to the Ethiopians. As this eunuch hears the story of Jesus, explained by a teacher, by Philip, and likely takes that news down to others on his travels. Here's the, here's the thing to notice in these two passages. The gospel moves forward in power as it is faithfully taught and explained by those obedient to God's will. Do you see that in these passages? The gospel moves forward with the Ethiopian eunuch because Philip faithfully teaches this eunuch, teaches him. This is about Jesus, this Old Testament passage that you're reading. The gospel moves forward in Samaria as Philip proclaims the gospel, and then as Peter and John come and confront the false teaching that happens shortly after the gospel gets some traction in Samaria. The gospel moves forward in power as it is faithfully taught and explained by those obedient to God's call. See that with Philip in these two passages. And then you see it once again in chapter 9 as Saul, the one who was persecuting the church, the one who was holding the coats and approving of the execution of Stephen, is on the road to do even more damage. Chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul, he just, I love how the, the text just phrases that. He's still breathing murder on his lips. You just get that picture of anger towards the church. He's ready to kill. And he's on that road, and as he went on his way, verse 3, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not the church? Why are you persecuting me? One of the more terrifying questions in all of Scripture, perhaps. And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Coat checker, approval of the execution, ravaging the church, breathing murder and threats against the church. But God is still moving. God has moved the gospel into Samaria. God has moved the gospel into Ethiopia. And Saul now hits the ground as Jesus shows up and confronts him. 
Saul moved, goes into the town for three days, no food, no water, without sight, blind. And God calls a man named Ananias to go to lay his hands on Saul, heal him, and explain to him who Jesus was. In each of these three stories, the gospel moves forward into new turf, into Samaria, into Ethiopia, and into Saul's heart. And in each of these three stories, it takes a human messenger to explain, to comfort, to confront. Peter and John have to confront false teaching in the first story. Uh, Philip has to teach the Ethiopian eunuch in the second story. And Ananias has to comfort Saul and help uh, explain to him what has happened in the third story. The gospel comes in power as it is faithfully taught and explained by those obedient to God's call. It's an amazing thing here as we see this throughout this passage that God's gospel moves forward in power, but in his divine sovereign plan, he uses people to take that message. Isn't that amazing? Even with Saul, when Jesus showed up, it took another person. God drew Ananias to go and explain and help Saul understand what had happened. The gospel comes in power as it is faithfully taught and explained by those obedient to God's call. God moves the gospel, moves this news of Jesus into new turf repeatedly. People are saved. It's an encouraging piece because what just happened here? Remember, the church was being persecuted. A leader was killed. The church dispersed. Would it survive? Well, these three stories begin to answer yes, absolutely. Despite the suffering of God's people, the gospel is still on the move. And I want to take a moment here and help you understand the powerful nature of that truth. Despite the suffering of God's people, the gospel is still moving. The gospel is moving in these passages. The gospel is breaking into new territory as it's proclaimed by Philip, as it's explained by Philip to the Ethiopian, as it miraculously converts Saul. The gospel is on the move undeniably in these three stories. It's an exciting time to hear these stories. But a human agent, what we might say a missionary, is the instrument that God repeatedly uses to accomplish his miraculous task in these stories. God calls Philip to proclaim the gospel. God calls Peter and John to confront false teaching. God calls Philip again to teach the gospel to the Ethiopian. And God calls Ananias to comfort and heal Paul. God is moving the gospel forward around the world in these passages, and God is using simple human people. It's awesome. It's exciting. But you might just say, well, that's great. That's great church history. Josh, thanks for bringing that lesson. Let's move on. Packer's game starts in 45 minutes. We're starting to get a little restless here. What are we supposed to do with this? Here's the deal. The gospel is at work here in these passages, The gospel is still at work today. The gospel is still at work today. And we may never see some of that. The gospel is at work in ways that we may never hear about. I have the opportunity to travel um, usually about five times a year and to go to areas of the world where the gospel is new and fresh. And uh, I've had the opportunity to train church leaders who are taking the gospel into uncharted territory in terms of church history. Last year, um, I was in Ethiopia, of all places, um, connected to our story in chapter 8, with a, 
uh, someone that many of you know, Scott Larson, a good friend of mine who pastors up in Lodi. And Scott and I were teaching, and we met a man named Takale. I think I pronounced his, word, his name wrong. You would have never known that if I hadn't admitted to it, so I'm just going to go with that pronunciation, Takale. Takale loves the church, has never been trained really, and is receiving this training of how to preach the Bible well. And Takale's work is to go to these tribes near Somalia that have never been reached with the gospel. Um, when Scott was preparing for this trip, he was watching one of those planet, or human planet videos on the BBC. You ever see those ones? And there's one about this Ethiopian tribe that kind of like stabs the, the vein of the cow and drinks the blood right out of there. So Scott's watching this. He sees it's in Ethiopia, and he invites his kids to come. Hey, look, this is Ethiopia. And as soon as his kids come in, there's the stab, and there's the drinking the blood. And he's like, well, I'm not going exactly there. But Takale is going to those people. These people have never been reached with the gospel, have never heard the news of Jesus Christ. And Takale, an Ethiopian who has received the gospel, believed in Christ, is now going to those tribes. The gospel is moving into areas of Africa that have never been reached before. The Pakistani groups that we talk to in, uh, in Dubai that work in Pakistan are moving the gospel into these small villages of brickmakers and sewer workers. The church is being built up in Pakistan right now as Pakistanis take the gospel forward. I've been able to work with Ugandan pastors who are planting churches in refugee camps around northern Uganda. Northern Uganda is just filled with refugee camps from uh, Eritrea and Somalia and Congo and all these other African war-torn areas are coming into northern Uganda, which used to be a horrible war-torn area. And now Ugandan pastors are being trained to take the gospel to former enemies in refugee camps and plant churches throughout northern Uganda. The gospel is still on the move around the world but it's different than what we may expect it to look like. The typical missionary today is not like me, white and Western educated. The typical missionary looks very different. It's a Mongolian going into North Korea with the news of the gospel. It's a Filipino serving as a domestic worker in Saudi Arabia with the news of the gospel. It's a Tanzanian pastor sharing the gospel with the tribe in the next valley that has never been reached. The gospel is moving right now. Faithful missionaries, faithful proclaimers of the word are taking the gospel into new uncharted territory. But there's a need to go and teach these missionary church leaders because of false belief, like what we saw in uh, chapter 8. There's a need to train them to address what is the truth of the gospel and where, where do our churches go wrong that happened in the book of Acts, that there were a need to follow up the missionary activity with good, sound teaching so that the church remains faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is moving forward. Even, even the, the way that Saul was converted with this miraculous appearance of Jesus, our, our president uh, at TLI just spent three months in Athens working on his dissertation, working on the, 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 the uh, immigrant church in Athens right now. Athens is filled with immigrants from Syria and Egypt and the Middle East. And as he began to talk and work with, um, with different refugee groups, he kept hearing the stories that maybe you've heard a little bit about of a Muslim who has a dream. And someone comes to him and says, you need to go to this church and ask them about Jesus. And so they go to that church, they ask them about Jesus, and for the first time ever, they hear the gospel and believe. The gospel is at work in Athens right now as Former Muslims are converting as God shows up in dreams and then others explain what just happened, just like what happened in Acts chapter 9. 
So often, though, there's a need to confront false teaching. Uh, and so we're training Liberian pastors who are battling the health and wealth gospel right now in West Africa. We're training Nepali pastors who are battling their, their, their converts to Christianity, just adding Jesus to the mix of Hindu gods and the, the need to talk about the exclusive nature of Jesus Christ. There's a passion for the gospel, but around the world there's a deluge of false teaching. And so it's been an exciting time for, for me to be able to go to these countries and work with people who are taking the gospel to new areas and train them on the truths of the gospel. We're now working at TLI, and as we've done this for a number of years, we're now teaching alongside those we have taught. And so in Ghana, West Africa, in Ethiopia, in Uganda, we, our graduates are now serving alongside us as instructors to the next generation of pastors and church leaders. And like Philip or Ananias, they're teaching other brothers and sisters the truth of the gospel. The gospel is still at work. Paul would be the pioneer to take the gospel to the ends of the known earth of his day, fulfilling Jesus' promise in 1.8 that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And right now, Ethiopians and Liberians and Pakistanis and Filipinos are now taking the gospel they've been taught and instructed in to the ends of the known earth in our day. Brothers and sisters, are you encouraged by that? I hope so. Here's what happens. We look at things like this, and we see our own pain, our own struggle, our own trials. And there are times where we need to take those blinders off and say, oh, look what the Lord is doing. This, is, this might be true not just in terms of some decisions in a local church. This might be just true in your own life, right? Some of you have adult children who have rejected Jesus, and you're looking at that child and going, oh, God, why aren't you working there? And you take the blinders off, and you're like, the Lord is at work. And if he can convert a guy like Saul to Christianity, if he can make Saul bow the knee to Jesus Christ, then he can certainly do that in his own time, in his own way, to my son or my daughter. Some of you have neighbors that mock you for your faith in Jesus Christ tried to tell them about Jesus. You've, you've said you believe in Jesus, and they have rejected you. And you look at that, and you say, why? Why, God? Why not just open their eyes like you did Saul's? Why? And it struggles, and it's painful, and it's awkward, and it's difficult. And then all of a sudden, you open your eyes, and you're like, oh, the Lord is at work right now. The gospel is at work. God, in his sovereignty, has not done a work in that person's heart, but around the world, Things are happening. The church is growing in ways that it has never grown. People are coming to Christ in ways that have never happened before. And it's an exciting time to see the growth of the church. There are more Muslims that have become Christians in the last two decades than the entire, his, than the entire amount of church history before that. I've said that weird. In the last 20 years, more people have come to faith in Christ out of Islam than in the rest of human history combined. It's amazing. Praise God for that. There's a seeming trend in our churches in the West to be pessimistic about the state of the church and the movement and growth of the gospel. And it's hard sometimes, right? We suffer just like the church in Acts. But I think Luke, as he's telling this story, wants to remind people there is suffering, there is pain, 
But God still is at work in ways that we need to hear about, be informed about. In these two chapters, the Jerusalem church is suffering, but the Spirit of God is active in bringing men and women into faith. The church is growing, and as Saul is converted, the expansion of the church to the ends of the earth begins. God is still active in this world in ways that we may never see until one day we stand before him and give him glory as we hear how others have believed. I like to think of it this way. One day I'm going to stand in front of Christ and be worshiping him, and I'll look over my neighbor and i say, how did you wind up here? <laughs> right? And I'll find this guy, this Pakistani guy, who just... The Lord worked somehow miraculous ways as the gospel spread. And I'll say, I didn't expect to be standing. I kind of expected to be standing next to the people I went to church with. But it's going to be different. Because God is at work in ways that we may never know. Well, how do you connect with this? How do you, how do you expand your vision? Let me give you two very practical tools, and then I'll wind it up here, okay? <clears throat> two things. One, if you haven't ever watched the video series, Dispatches from the Front. Anybody watch that or read the book? No one. Okay, kind of like one little wave there. I wasn't sure if you're like committing to that or just kind of like, a, uh, you know. It's great. It's a good thing. I'm going to praise you for that. Uh, go ahead and get those. Like, find those. Maybe a few of you, like, go together and get the video series and then share it around. It's a fantastic, well-done kind of documentary look at how the gospel is moving in new ways right now. Um, and... Uh, You'll need to preview them a little bit before you watch them with your church because they go into some, some really dark areas of the world and um, some really um, difficult situations. But maybe even get those as a church and just spread them around. Just share, see what the Lord is doing in Thailand, what the Lord is doing in China, what the Lord is doing in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Middle East. As you watch those videos, be encouraged by faithful men and women who are proclaiming the gospel and leading the church into new areas. Second resource for you, if you have the book or if you want to get a new book, get it, but then you can also do it online, is uh, Operation World is a phenomenal way to daily hear about a new country. You can go to Operation World's website, just Google it, you'll find it. And every day they'll just kind of list a country and say what the Lord is doing in that country and how you can pray for that country and the church in that country. It's amazing to me as I watch that how many of the prayer requests revolve around training the leaders of the church. It's encouraging to me because it means I'll have a job after a while here and I'll keep my job. But around the world, the Lord is at work, and you can find out. You also expand your geography a little bit, and you'll learn new countries' names and locations, so that's a good win for you. But just go to that website every once in a while and just pray for that country and hear what the Lord is doing in new areas. So Operation World and Dispatches from the Front. But here's my encouragement for you guys this morning. The Lord is at work. I don't know how. I don't know where. I know what he's done in the past. I can look back on his promises that are being fulfilled. I don't know what he's going to do next. But I know it's going to be good. And I know it will be for his glory. Because he's told us that. To the ends of the earth. And as one day we stand before Christ, we will worship him with our brothers from Pakistan and Mongolia and Africa and our sisters from around the world as we give him glory and we say, worthy are you. Let me pray for you. Father, it is so easy to look at a small slice of what our situation is and be consumed by it. 
And I, I often think like, that's, that's not all wrong because that small slice is usually personal. It's a relative or a, a decision that affects us and it's right to have sorrow and pain around that. But that's not the whole picture. God, around the world, you are continually drawing people to yourself for your glory. And one day, people from every tongue and tribe and nation will stand before you, lift up the name of your son, say, worthy. And so, God, in our discouragement about our life, about our situation, about our jobs, about our family, about all the stuff that just weighs us down, Will you lift our heads up out of that and help us to see that you are at work? The church in Acts was likely afraid, confused, and scared. And yet even in their suffering, you were taking the gospel into new territories. And I ask right now that with Damascus Road, you take the gospel into new lives as this church moves forward. Father, we love you. Thank you for your work around the work. We do ask for those who have family members, loved ones, neighbors, that you would open their eyes to the gospel, that you would floor them like you floored Saul so that they say, worthy along with us. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.